Ahoy, authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 131 of the Writership Podcast. I'm Leslie Watts, and today I'm talking about analyzing scenes. The Writership Podcast is designed to help you develop self-editing skills and write better stories. In a typical episode, my guest host and I critique a fiction submission from a real writer who is, or hopes to be, a published author. These writers want to find out what's working and not in their stories and are brave enough to share the experience. At the end of the episode, I'll offer an editorial mission to help you apply the topic we've discussed so you can improve your writing too. If you want to learn more about the podcast, read the show notes and grab this week's editorial mission, visit writership.com slash podcast. Okay, so I am flying solo today. Sailing solo? Something like that. Uh, And ordinarily, I like to have another a guest so that we can have a conversation about the scene. Um, But circumstances require this today, so the show must go on. I have a couple of announcements before we dive into the submission. And the first is about submissions. The guideline in the past has been five standard manuscript pages, or about 1,250 words. And often that wasn't quite enough for me to read the entire scene or to provide adequate context for what's happening. So I've adjusted the guideline and now you can send up to 2,000 words for review on the podcast. We won't always be able to read all the words, but it will help me get a better idea of what's happening in the scene so I can offer better feedback. If you're thinking about getting some feedback on how you can make your story stronger, then take the plunge. Submit your scene or short story at writership.com submissions. Okay, I've been telling you for the last few weeks that we are going to have new Patreon rewards. And as promised, here they are. We have three levels of support. Cabin crew members receive a shout out on the podcast and are featured on our supporters page. They will also receive an invitation to the Writership Podcast Slack community, where we continue the discussions started here on the show. Shipmates receive a shout out, access to the community, and an invitation to our monthly Q&A call. Each month, I'll host a call to answer your burning questions about writing and storytelling. We might focus on a specific topic or cover a wide range of topics. This month, that is July 2018, we'll be working on identifying genre and sales categories for your story so you can determine the reader expectations you need to meet. The Quartermasters group receives the shout out, 
access to the community, the monthly Q&A call, and our monthly deep scene dive. Each month, one of our members will submit a scene, which I'll critique and send back to them, like I do on the podcast. Then they'll have an opportunity to make changes and resubmit, and then we'll discuss it in the monthly group call. So this is a way to get past the initial stage of revision and really get into the nitty gritty of making scenes great. Okay, so if you want to find out how to support the podcast through Patreon and gain access to these rewards, visit patreon.com slash writership. Okay, now into the main event of the podcast today. We're talking about analyzing scenes. Now we've covered different aspects of this process in other episodes, but today I want to show you the big picture and how the smaller parts work together. Now, I have a quote for you. It just so happens from Jack M. Bickham. Structure is nothing more than a way of looking at your story material so that it's organized in a way that's both logical and dramatic. Structure is a process, not a rigid format. Structure in fiction is not static, but dynamic. Okay, we're going to be talking about structure and that's because when you analyze a scene, you want to figure out whether you have all the elements you need and the parts to deliver a satisfying scene experience. And the cool thing, of course, about scenes is that they have the same basic story structure of your macro story, of the overall story. And so anything you do to practice scenes and really make them strong will help you with writing the overall story. So you get, gain a lot of benefit for the effort you put into practicing scenes. So let's turn to our submission. Today it is The Grim Book by A.W. Moyers, a YA fantasy story with the word count target of about 95,000 words. It is not yet published at the time of recording. This scene comes from the beginning of a story in which a daydreaming stable hand is thrown into a sweeping adventure when a mysterious young woman steals a valuable book from the castle where he lives and works. The Grim Book, Chapter 1, A Most Eventful Afternoon In the west of the yawning sea which envelops the world, there was once an island called Gale. It was not unlike many of the islands you've probably heard of before. It had green trees and rolling hills, wide lakes and trickling streams, and creatures of all shapes and sizes called it home. It was a large island, being several hundred miles across, and was often battered by strong winds and fierce sea storms, to which it owed its name. The people of Gale had lived there for longer than anyone could remember. They were a hardy, stubborn lot, and lived in houses of wood and stone, which were every bit as sturdy and practical as they themselves. To the best of their knowledge, Gale had been, and always would be, the whole of the world. 
They didn't know what might lie across the sea and over the horizon, and that was just the way they liked it. Thank you very much. They were perfectly content to farm their fields, raise their sheep, and live as best they could in peace and quiet. This is the story of a young man who cared very much about what lay across the horizon and the wondrous, unexpected adventure upon which he would one day set out. On the eastern edge of the island, overlooking the village of Grove, was the castle of Ker Branagh. It was an old castle and often quite drafty. Its proud stone halls and grassy courtyards were not what they had been once upon a time, but it was still a handsome old place and much beloved by the people of Grove. Its stern parapets and billowing red banners stood as a constant reminder that the village was and would remain a place to which evil things seldom came. The Arl of Carebranagh, or Lord if you prefer, was a kindly old man named Declan McCullough. He had ruled over Grove for many years and was as well admired by its people as the castle itself. Under Arl Declan, harvests had been good, taxes had been low, and there was almost no crime to speak of, save the odd bit of sheep thievery. But that was nearly as much a tradition as a crime anyway, unless not paid over much mind. For all that, however, this is not the story about Arl Declan McCullough, nor is it a story about Carbrana or the village of Grove. This is a story about the young man whom I've previously mentioned, who just so happened to live and work in Carbrana. This young man's name was Tristan Turnberry. He was slightly taller than most boys his age, this being about 15 at the time, and somewhat gangly. He had curly brown hair, a rather pale complexion, and the most inviting pair of mossy green eyes, which filled anyone who spoke to him with pleasant thoughts of meadows after rain. Tristan had lived in Ker Branagh, for as long as he could remember. He had been brought to the castle as a baby after the tragic death of his parents in a fire years before, and had been brought up by his uncle Connor, the castle's stable master. Connor proved a stern but able foster father and insisted that Tristan get an education. By the Arl's leave, he was always fond of Connor and the boy. Tristan was given lessons by Bartholomew, the castle's archivist, and thus, unlike a great many stable boys in the world, Tristan was taught his letters from a young age. The boy quickly began devouring any book he could get his hands on. Luckily, Ker Branagh had an extensive library, among the largest on the island, in fact, and each day after his duties were done, and a vigorous washing. Tristan would spend hours in the library squinting by candlelight as he charged headlong through the musty ranks of the castle's archives. He spent so much time there that even old Bartholomew shook his head and muttered that the boy was becoming rather too bookish for his own good. 
but what books they were. If you had had access to even half the assortment of strange and wonderful works as a child, which packed the shelves of Brenos library, you would be much the same, and I would bet on it. From such fanciful titles as The Epic of Gelgalane and The Trials of Sir Renival, to admittedly drier, but no less interesting tomes such as On the Anatomies of Griffins and Three Treatises on the Applications of Troll's Blood. Tristan was swept away night after night into strange lands under distant skies. It was not long before the boy began dreaming of a life beyond shoeing, stabling, and shoveling, and his uncle often had to bark at him to snap him out of his daydreaming. Yet, in spite of it all, the boy never stopped dreaming of the day when a grand adventure might arrive to steal him away from the drafty old castle. As it happened, Tristan would one day get precisely such a chance, though it did not end up being at all like he might have imagined. When, on a bright spring afternoon, Many and more years ago, a strange visitor arrived at Carbranagh. On this particular afternoon, I believe it was a Wednesday, Tristan was in the middle of acting out an especially exciting fantasy in which hordes of evil goblins and a captive princess featured prominently. His uncle had set him to shoveling out the stables in preparation for the feasting that evening. Ker Branagh would be hosting the Terna herself, that is, the High Queen of Gale, and they were expected to have the stables in top shape for all of the horses belonging to the royal retinue. Stable shoveling being rather monotonous work, Tristan had lapsed into his fantasy as a way to pass the time, and now pictured himself wielding not a manure-caked pitchfork, but a mighty spear of legend, which he used to impale his pungent foes and fling them away with triumphant laughter. Just as he was preparing to deal the final blow to the leader of his excrementitish adversaries, there came an angry commotion from around the corner of the stable. Tristan jumped at the frightful sound, nearly dropping his pitchfork. What on earth could that be? he said to himself. From the squawking and scraping noises, it sounded much as if a large bird had gotten caught in a storage barrel and was fighting to free itself. Exiting the stall, he cautiously worked his way around the side of the building and was quite surprised by what he saw. It was not a bird, it was three. Three large crows were flapping and squawking and clawing at something on the ground that Tristan couldn't quite see. Crows, of course, are notoriously mischievous birds and can be downright menaces if left unchecked. Tristan didn't know what they were up to, but he figured that whatever it was probably wasn't good, and that he'd better clear them off. Taking a deep breath, Tristan raised his mighty pitchfork and charged toward the maelstrom of feathers and talons, yelling at the top of his lungs. 
Taken by surprise, the three birds gave alarmed cries and flew away in terror. Sighing with relief, he propped his pitchfork against the side of the stable and looked down toward whatever the birds had been so intent upon. It's an owl, he exclaimed. And so it was. The brown and white owl appeared to be unconscious and was bleeding in places where the crows had raked at its body. Tristan carefully lifted the injured bird from the ground and set it atop a barrel. He took a step back and let it alone. He had a brief moment to wonder at its being out at this time of day before the injured creature began to stir. I'll bet it could use some water, he murmured, and rushed back into the stables where there lay a bucket of the stuff he had hauled up earlier that day. Tristan ladled some out and, returning to his patient, held the dipper down toward its head. The bird opened its eyes and stared at the ladle before shifting its piercing gaze to Tristan. Then it drew itself to an upright position and scooped out a few mouthfuls. Though a bit scratched up, the owl's wounds didn't appear as serious as he'd first thought. I don't know what you were thinking making trouble with those fellows, my friend, said Tristan, but I don't suppose you look all the worse for wear. Will you be all right now, I wonder? The owl turned its eyes back to Tristan and stared at him for a long moment. Then it did something most unexpected. The owl nodded at him. Tristan was so surprised by this that he dropped the ladle. He scrambled to retrieve it, but when he came up again, the owl was gone. Tristan stared at the barrel in amazement. He hadn't seen or heard it fly away. And yet, it was simply gone. Had he imagined the whole thing? The scratch marks and spots of blood on the barrel convinced him that the birds themselves had at least been real. But the owl had nodded at him, hadn't it? He was sure of that, or at least he thought he was. At that moment, there came a slight cough from behind. Tristan turned with a start. He had been so wrapped up in his astonishment that he hadn't heard anyone drawing near and was surprised to find himself staring into a pair of round blue eyes belonging to a dark-haired young woman. Good morning, he stammered. This was generally considered the proper thing to say in such situations, and Tristan had had a good deal of practice at saying it. Unfortunately for him, it was not morning, as I have told you. Isn't it just, replied the young woman, paying no mind to his slip-up. She was shorter than he, though many people were, and looked to be about the same age, or perhaps a year or two older. She was thin, and her hair fell past her neck in unkempt locks. Instead of a gown, she wore a yellow waistcoat over a faded white shirt, brown trousers, and, a, and large black boots. A weather-stained green cloak hung from her shoulders. The girl was, all things considered, 
quite possibly the strangest-looking person Tristan had ever seen at Carabranagh. He waited for her to say more, but was disappointed. I, er, don't believe we've met, he said, unable to think of something more clever. Young women didn't often approach him, mostly, he thought, because he often smelled of horses. He hadn't the slightest idea what one should say to them. No, I don't expect we have, she replied breezily, leaving Tristan once again awkwardly waiting for her to say more, and being once again disappointed. Can, can I help you with something? he asked, becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the situation. This was quickly becoming the strangest Wednesday he could remember, and the way the girl kept staring at him was more than a little unnerving. Yes, I expect you can, she said. At least, I hope you can. I'm looking for the library, you see, and I'm having a terribly difficult time getting anyone to tell me just where it is. This castle is really quite large, you know, and everyone's rushing about in such a state that no one will spare half a moment to talk to me. Can you help me? Okay, thanks to A.W. Moyers for sharing the scene with us. This is really fun. You could probably tell by the way I read it. It was really fun and a delightful opening and introduction to the island of Gale and Carabranagh, so that the world in which we're entering. But also we get to know young Tristan pretty quickly and pretty well. There are lots of fun details about the character and the world. And although there's a lot of information up front, and we might want to look at um, what the reader needs to know up front, um, the the delightful tone and the voice are so welcoming that mostly, for the most part, I don't care that I'm getting basically a lot of information. Um, the tone and voice telegraph what we can expect from the story. And even if you didn't know this was a YA fantasy story, you could probably pick up on that from reading this beginning. So that's a great opening, I would say, because one of the things you want your opening to do, right, is is help the reader understand what they're getting themselves into. The same way your book cover, for example, should telegraph that. Okay, so I want to set that aside for a moment because I want to talk a little bit about story form. Now, story form, actually, I want to talk about it from the vantage point of principles right? Okay, a principle is a fundamental truth. And from principles, we develop guidelines that help us fulfill the promise of the fundamental truth as a practical matter. So guidelines exist to serve the fundamental truth, not to stand as principles themselves. Okay, here's a real world example. A society's constitution should identify the principles of the society, while the laws are meant to help with the implementation of those principles. It doesn't always work that way, but that's the main idea. 
Okay, so in the context of stories, one principle or fundamental truth is that stories are about change that comes through action in the face of conflict. If you're missing one of those elements, change, action, or conflict, then you don't really have a story, though you might have an interesting series of events. A story that works is one that meets reader expectations. So you want to make sure you have that change, action, and conflict. So as humans, right, we've all internalized this principle as consumers or readers of stories. Some humans have the lucky devils, have internalized these principles as writers. So they can simply sit down and write a story that works, more or less, without having to think about the elements that are working beneath the surface. Now, they still need to revise, of course, but they have this integrated sense of story that allows them to write the story that works. The rest of us need to be a little bit more deliberate in applying the principle. We need to look at the guidelines and be more, as I say, deliberate about it. Now, we aren't better or worse. We're just different. And thankfully, there are people who've identified the elements or the guidelines of the principle and passed them along to us. Okay. So as I mentioned before, basic story form applies to each level of the work. So from scenes to the entire story, that's useful, as I mentioned, because writing and analyzing scenes will help you with the macro and the micro of your story. But what does that look like? Right, we have change, action, and conflict. But let's break those down a little more. So this is how it looks in a typical story or scene. A character is living life, minding their own business. Then one day something happens, could be good, could be bad, that upsets the status quo, throwing their life out of balance to a greater or lesser extent. When this happens, a desire arises within them. And from the desire comes a goal. They take action. That is, they pursue the goal and they face obstacles to achieving the goal. But they also, along the way, hopefully, find helpful tools and then also encounter people, places, and things that seem, at least at the outset, irrelevant. Then an unexpected event occurs. One of those people, places, or things turns out to be relevant after all. And the character faces a dilemma. When they choose a course of action, there are consequences that unfold. Okay, that's a basic, that's basic story form, right? That goes back to Freytag's uh, pyramid. This is, uh, this is old as the hills, as they say. So when we're talking about this in terms of story grid language, we would say the happening that upsets the status quo is, is the inciting incident the obstacles and tools and also the irrelevant things in the environment are progressive complications. The unexpected event is the turning point progressive complication. The dilemma that the character faces is what we call the crisis, 
and the decision they make and action they take from there are the climax. The consequences that unfold are the resolution. So you can call these things whatever you want. I often use the story grid language just because it's easy, but understand that this is just basic story form. So when we look at scenes, it's useful to have a clear understanding of what happens, but this is more than just a simple summary. You want a shorthand reference that tells you what's most important, like what's really going on in the scene. So we ask some questions about that. The first question is, what are the characters literally doing? This is the literal action. It's what's happening on the surface, right? In our example, I'll go through our example in detail from the submission, but basically what Tristan is doing in that scene is that he is cleaning out the stables and then helping an injured owl and talking to a young woman. That is literally what's happening. Okay. Then we ask, what is the essential action of what the characters are doing? So this is what's happening beneath the surface or the subtext. And when we describe this, we use an action verb, a transitive verb, to describe the action. Now, Anne, Holly, and I talked about essential and literal action in episode 129, and we really dove into that and talked about how you get the verbs, the action verbs, and and that kind of thing. So if you want to find out more about that, check out episode 129. Okay, so once you have the literal and the essential action, you want to consider what has changed from the beginning to the end of the scene. Now, we refer to these in the story grid parlance, we refer to these as life value changes. A life value is just a condition or state of human experience. It sounds a lot more complicated than it is. It could be hot and cold. It can be wet and dry. It can be life and death, which is a lot more serious, of course. It can be sad and happy, okay? Now, within any given scene, you might have lots and lots of different life value changes. So we want to make a list and then see which one impacts the main conflict in the story. I want to pause on scenes for a moment to to talk about the big story and what the life value changes are in big stories because you want the The changes in the scene should affect and move the main story or the main conflict in the story. Okay, so in in the realm of the story grid, we have 12 content genres. For example, action, crime, love story, etc., right? And each one is an exploration of the complications that we encounter in trying to meet our human needs. And each need fits, or rather each genre fits within one of the human needs that come from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay, so how do you find the life value at stake for your, for the content genre that you're working with? Okay, well, 
I'll have a picture on the in the show notes that will show it. But basically, what you want to do is look at the inciting incident for your story, right? The thing that kicks it all off, because that will give you a clue to what human need is threatened, and therefore the life value at stake. So the inciting incident is a threat or opportunity related to the human need at stake in the particular content genre. And here's a list of inciting incidents as examples with the human need that it impacts. Okay, so we have in an action story, the villain attacks and that threatens a character's survival needs. So that's life and death. Okay, in a crime story, a crime is committed or discovered, and that threatens the character's need for safety and security. So if we extrapolate a little bit there, what we're looking at, the life value at stake in a crime story, is justice and injustice. Okay, in a horror story, the monster attacks which threatens the character's need to survive, but also their safety and security. Monsters roaming the neighborhood make us feel really unsafe. Okay, so those are all like really, those are all external genres, right? But what does it look like in an internal genre? For example, worldview maturation, which is the typical you often see in YA stories and middle grade stories. It's a coming of age story, and it represents a movement from some level of naivete to some level of sophistication. So I've kind of given it away there. But the inciting opportunity or challenge in a worldview maturation story is Exactly that, an opportunity or challenge to the character's naive understanding of the world. And that creates an opening towards self-fulfillment. Okay, so that's not all of them, but that's a lot of them. And I'll include that list with all the different content genres in the show notes. Okay, so we've got human needs impacted by the inciting incident of a story, and that gives us the life value at stake in the genre. And that should relate to the main conflict in the story, as well as the progressive complications, that is the obstacles, should be standing in the way of the character meeting those needs. Okay, so that's part of determining whether the life value at stake in the scene is impacting the life value at stake in the big story. Now, let's look at AW's submission. And we'll go through those questions, as I said. So what are the characters literally doing? Tristan is daydreaming while cleaning the stables, and he helps an injured owl that was attacked by crows. A young woman appears and asks for help finding the library. Okay, that's simple enough. That's what's happening on the surface. What is the essential action of what the characters are doing? Okay, remember, this is the subtext, right? This is what the character wants, what they're trying to achieve. You might also call it the character's scene goal. 
And this is a little hard to determine from the outside looking in and without having read the entire story. But for your scenes, you'll want to know what does the point of view character want in the scene? Okay, so here's my best guess. Tristan wants to avoid reality while completing the job. Okay. Now, what life values have changed for one or more of the characters in this scene? So what has changed from the beginning to the end? We could say that Tristan's day has gone from being pretty mundane to being kind of interesting. We could say that he's gone from being alone to having a companion, or that he went from being on task to being distracted, right? There are lots of different things that are that are happening. But the one I think that's key is that he started with a firm grip on the difference between reality and imagination, and he moves to some level of uncertainty about that. So I've already given away my answer for the next question, which is which life value change is most relevant to the main conflict in the story? Okay, so based on the details offered in the opening, it's fair to say we have both a coming of age story and an adventure story. In story grid parlance, we would say that this is a worldview maturation story combined with action adventure. Now, I'm not sure, just reading one scene, which is the primary content genre. So I'll offer a suggestion for each. And really, if you're doing this analysis for your story, you want to track both the internal and the external journey of the character no matter which one is the primary. Okay, for worldview maturation, the life value moves from some level of naivete to some level of sophistication, as I mentioned before. So often we start with a protagonist who thinks they're pretty sophisticated, but they're actually naive. So I would pick that a firm grip on reality to uncertainty um, as the life value that is most shift, that's most relevant to the, the story if worldview maturation is the primary one. This appears to be naivete masked as sophistication because he is so, he's done so much book learning to actually moving to recognizing that he is naive. It seems to represent, as I should say, I should say, the first glimmer of that, of recognizing he doesn't have everything figured out, despite the fact that he's read a lot of books. Okay, so for action adventure, the life value spectrum includes life and death. Now, we have to do a little reading between the lines here. The owl's life seems to be threatened, but in terms of Tristan, we don't really, he's not threatened. So where do we get this? You know, the, how does it impact the story? Well, the narrator tells us that Tristan is getting, that this is the beginning of a grand adventure for him. So we can presume that Tristan is moving from safe. Remember, there's no crime to speak of here in 
um, in Grove. So Tristan can count on being fairly safe, fires aside. Um, and so he moves from being safe to being to some level of unsafe, or at least the potential for it. As the reader at this point, we don't know for sure. But when you are looking at your own story as the creator who knows what happens in the whole story, and how it ends, you want to take that into account as you're analyzing your scenes. Okay, so if we take the answers to these four questions and write out a concise story event, we might say, when cleaning the stable for the queen's visit, Tristan thinks he sees an injured owl nod to him, and while trying to reassure, reassure himself, he encounters a stranger. Okay, so once we've done those four question, questions and we have a concise statement of the story event, then we want to look at the five commandments of storytelling. Right? Those are the, the inciting incident, progressive complications, crisis, climax, and resolution. Okay, so in this scene, what is the inciting incident? Tristan is assigned to clean the stables. That's it. The the queen or the terna is coming and they he needs to clean the stables for the for their horses. So then what are the progressive complications and turning point progressive complication? Remember that progressive complications are basically obstacles and tools that the point of view character encounters as they are pursuing their goal. The turning point progressive complication is an, is an unexpected event that is also an obstacle or tool. Okay, in this scene, we have a loud noise that distracts him. He discovers an injured owl and he cares for the owl. So we have basically we have three obstacles to his getting the job done. Right. And but he also he discovers a pail of water that helps him with the injured owl. And so that we could say is a tool. Right. He had already gotten that. It's in the environment. Then we have the unexpected event of the owl nodding to him. That's crazy. That was not something that we could have anticipated. Or he certainly <laughs> didn't anticipate it. So that unexpected event forces a dilemma. And a lot of times the dilemma is an external one. You know, um, if you think about... Um, the, the example I always think about is in The Hobbit when when Bilbo is in the tree and the those big creatures, the wargs, are at the bottom of the tree. So he can't, you know, he's up in the tree for safety, but then the tree set, is set on fire. And, you know, in a situation like that, the, the fire might be the turning point that causes you to have a dilemma. Do I stay in the tree that's burning and get burned or do I jump and, you know, 
get hurt maybe and get devoured by wargs. Um, there's, you know, something else happens so that um, he doesn't actually have to choose one of those things. But that's an aside. Just think about it as these, two, you know, the an external dilemma looks kind of like that. But this is an internal dilemma, right? He's asking himself, did that owl really nod at me? Or did I imagine it? Like, was I so immersed in my fantasies that I lost the, uh, I lost the thread or the, you know, that grip on what's real and what's not? Okay, so the crisis is that question and the climax is the answer. And here he said he was sure of that. Like, he was sure he saw it. Or at least he thought he was. So he's not quite sure. Um, and so it's not right. It's not a definitive answer. In court, we would force him maybe to say a little more um, definitively. But I would say that he, yeah, he doesn't know which raises doubt, right, about his grip on reality or his understanding of the world at the very least then what is the resolution of this scene? Tristan is distracted by the events and his doubts, and when a young woman approaches him um, and asks for help, he's a little flustered. Okay, so we've done this scene analysis. We've looked at the literal and essential action, what changes from the beginning to the end of the scene, and then we've gone through the five commandments of storytelling. Now, what does this tell us? What can we do? All right, if we have, if I've, if I have an accurate picture of the scene, the writer could tell us better about whether I have, um, I've gotten what his intention was. Then, if it's accurate, then what we can say about the scene is that it turns. That is, there is change from beginning to the end of the scene, right? I've spotted all five commandments of storytelling, which includes the obstacles or progressive complications, which provide conflict, right? But we also have the character. It's not, I know we don't think of thoughts necessarily as being action, but Essentially, a decision is an action. So what when he decides what he thinks about what has happened or that he doesn't really know what has happened, then he that is action, right? He was faced with conflict. He's made a decision that he's not really sure. Again, we have a change through conflict and action. Now, the change seems relevant to the overall story, whether the internal or external are the primary storyline. We can also say that each commandment within this scene seems relevant to the main conflict in the scene, and that the main conflict in the scene is relevant to what I believe will be the main conflict within the story. 
Now, another question we might ask ourselves is whether the literal action is consistent with the character's essential action. In other words, are their actions consistent with what they want in the scene? It seems to be the case. And then is the essential action consistent with the overall story goal? That seems pretty likely to me as well from this assessment. Now, the author would want to look at this more closely, knowing what they know about the rest of the story, especially if any of my assumptions about it are wrong. But overall, what we can say is that we have a solid working scene. And that is awesome, right? Well, where to from here? What would you do next? Okay, it depends on where you are in the in revision, right? There are different phases of revision, different levels. And so if this is your first time through the manuscript and you have you're analyzing the scenes, well, you wouldn't necessarily do that on your very first time through the manuscript. But let's say this is the first time you are analyzing the scenes in this way. You would, as a, you know, if you're following the story grid method, you would enter the information in the spreadsheet and then move on to the next scene. Now you can, um, if you're not doing a spreadsheet, if you're not doing the story grid analysis, of course, you can make note of these things and then move on to the next scene. Now, if you're in later stages of revision, you could go from here where you've established that the scene works on a on the very basic level, and you could start looking at a beat level analysis. Now, I haven't talked about beats. I've mentioned them in the past, but I haven't talked about how to analyze them. They, these are tiny units of conflict that make up scenes, and they can make you a little bit crazy. But that's one level of analysis if you are in the later stages of revising your story. You could also look at transitions within the scene, the levels and degree of conflict, reversibility, the specifics about the specifics, I mean like really nitty-gritty, about how the scene affects the primary story conflict, etc. There's there, there are plenty of rabbit holes to go down if you really enjoy the analysis part of the story. Um, but that's all very advanced stuff. And as I say, happens really late in the process of revision. Um, the, the thing about all these nitty gritty details, because what I hear is there's a little voice in my head or someone saying, yeah, but this seems really picky and... It's just, you know, do you really need that to write a, a story that works, that's satisfying to readers? And do I spend so much time in this analysis that I never get my story finished? I don't want, I want you to finish your story. I, and I want your story to be satisfying to your readers, of course. You don't have to necessarily go to that deep level of, of minutia. But what I will say is that the things that you pick up by really looking at your story, right? It's the same kind of thing with when if you don't know where your time goes, then taking some time to record how you spend it is a good way to figure out 
where you're being most effective. Same thing with your money, right? If you don't know where your money is going, it's good to take a look, take stock of what's there, what you're doing with it. And that way you can make better choices, right? Because if you're not one of those people that I talked about earlier, who to whom story just like is transmitted through the ether, then it really, and even for them, actually, it behooves you to be very intentional about the choices you're making in your story and seeing what is actually on the page, what's happening at that level will help you understand the story better. And then over time, as you practice this, you will get better and better and better at writing these scenes. And so some of this will become integrated and you won't have to think so hard about it and so much. So start where you are, of course. Start with does this scene work? And then from there, take it as it comes, right? The the takeaway is this author has written a delightful and working scene that's really fun. As I mentioned might consider the um, the information, the exposition that comes in the beginning and perhaps the order of that. But, but overall, this is an excellent working scene. On to the editorial mission. I want you to analyze your scenes. Okay, you can analyze a scene to find out whether it works. And to do that, we interrogate it. We ask these questions and they are adapted from story grid methodology created by Sean Coyne, but also from other sources. There's a few um, additions here. So you can apply these questions to a story you love to find out what makes it work. Or of course, you can apply it to your own story that you're working on. Now, I don't recommend getting into this deep level of analysis when you're drafting because it can become a form of resistance. But once you have a draft done, or if you are simply practicing writing scenes, as we do in the the scene intensive, then you can, you can use these questions, this process. Okay. And it looks much like we did for the submission today. We look at the scene and you, you know, we read it thoroughly. Then you ask about the literal action. What are the characters actually doing on the surface? Then the essential action. What is your, what does your point of view character want in the scene. Then we look at what changes, what life value changes happen from the beginning to the end of the scene and which one of the one or two of those are most relevant to the overall story. Then you go through and identify the five commandments of storytelling in your scene, right? And I've got extra questions. I'll have extra questions on the website in the show notes um, with to help you figure those out. So the inciting incident is about what upsets the status quo and what the character desires and what the goal is, you know, so there will be some extra questions to help you um, figure those out. Okay, so once you've gathered all of that information, ask yourself, does the scene turn? 
That is, is there a change from the beginning to the end? Have you established all five commandments of storytelling? Is the change that happens relevant to the overall story? In other words, do those events in the scene bring the character closer to or further from their goal in the story or shifting the big life value for the story? Is each commandment relevant to the main conflict in the scene? Is the main conflict in the scene relevant to the main conflict within the story? Is the character's literal action consistent with their essential action? In other words, are their actions consistent with what they want? Is the character's essential action consistent with their overall story goal? Now, don't worry about getting these answers right or perfect. Do not get stuck here. You just want to work through them quickly with an, the intention to find out what's really happening and why it matters to your story. Your analysis and understanding of the scene may change over time. I want to let you know that. That's really normal. As you practice, you'll become more comfortable with the process. You'll have a deeper understanding, and that will support you whether you're drafting or revising the scenes. Another thing is don't beat yourself up if your scenes don't work. Lots of people's scenes don't work until they analyze them, right? Unless you're one of those people, those magical people who can just whip this stuff out, you're not going to write a scene that works every time. Or maybe in the beginning, many of your scenes won't work. That doesn't matter. This is just information, useful information to help you see where you're at so you can fill the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Okay, so as always, you can find the editorial mission as well as all the show notes at writership.com slash episodes, where you can also sign up to have the editorial missions delivered to your inbox. All right, as we wrap things up, I want to offer deep gratitude to A.W. Moyers, the author of today's submission, and our Patreon crew for supporting the podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to show your support, visit patreon.com slash writership, where you can join our community, as well as the new Q&A and deep scene dive calls. If you'd like to show your support in other ways, tell a writing friend about the podcast or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you need instructions on that, if you're feeling not quite as tech savvy as you'd like to be, there are handy instructions on the website. If you would like to have your scene or short story critiqued on the podcast, visit writership.com slash submissions. That's it for episode 131. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Mm-hmm.